So we will begin now with any kinds of uh, questions you want to raise to Charles or to John out of the previous discussion or out of the previous reading or out of the previous life. Uh, uh, a woman in the back named Dorothy has a question. Would you uh, give a little further outline, perhaps a little more detail about the doctrine of communism? No. Uh, Dave, do you think you better repeat the question? Yes, uh, the question is, would he uh, spell out a little more his doctrine of contributionism? It, it's my uh, reinterpretation of the old idea that the, uh, that the aim of creation is the glory of God or that uh, our uh, duty to God is to serve God, that the service of God is the, the basic principle of, of obligation and of all value. Now, I hold as Whitehead did, and I might have reached this view without Whitehead since I taught aesthetics for a number of years, uh, but purely by accident. The professor of aesthetics suddenly grew ill and I had, somebody had to take over the course, so I did. But <clears throat> Whitehead held, and I've long held, that the aim of life is better described in aesthetic terms than any others. The aim of life is the creation of aesthetic value, and uh, the word beauty is not the only word to use about aesthetic value, but beauty is at least the central aesthetic value, meaning central rather literally. I make a circle in which beauty is, is a little circle in the middle of a big circle. Uh, the sublime is not just the same as the beautiful, but it's related to it. The pretty is not the same as the beautiful, but it's related to it. The value of humor, of uh, jokes, the value of something, the enjoyable value of something ridiculous uh, is an aesthetic value. All those are values that you enjoy just for their own sakes. You don't ask what, what are the consequences, how useful will it be for this or, or that future good. Uh, aesthetic value is intrinsic immediate value. Now, I hold that the, the basic value of the world for God is aesthetic. But for God, it is beautiful. <clears throat> and everything we do can add a new uh, enrichment to the beauty of the whole creation. Uh, this is Whitehead's view, the, the aim of all nature is beauty. Now, Whitehead also stresses the word intensity, but that's an essential uh, dimension of aesthetic value. A very tepid experience can't be supremely uh, valuable intrinsically. It has to be intense. And Whitehead holds there's no absolute upper limit to intensity. Uh, uh, now, of course, some intense experiences are painful, but even an intense painful experience is not totally without value, according to Whitehead, and, and I agree with that. When there's no value at all, I think we just lose consciousness. So I think there's always some value in experience. And the value of my experience can be c communicated to you if you can participate in my experience, if you can be aware of, of my awareness uh, of something that can contribute value to your awareness. And to me, that uh, we basically serve God by contributing to the divine awareness of the aesthetic value of the world. Now, ethical value can be included in that in two ways. There's a beauty of, well, there's an expression, the beauty of holiness. Now, that's a genuine aesthetic value, I would say. 
a good will, just in t to have a good will is intrinsically a, a value. There's something satisfying about a good will, there's something dissatisfying about an ill will. So, uh, ethical value is partly, directly, a, a kind of, of aesthetic value, and also, instrumentally, if it's genuine goodness, it will, at least probably, contribute to future aesthetic value. It will make life more richly beautiful for yourself or others. And when there are people who claim to be very good, but who make life ugly for themselves and those around them, you have to be rather suspicious, I think. That's not what real goodness should do. Thank you. I have a question here from Joseph. Yeah. Uh, as a follow-up to that, it, it's not clear <coughs> what purpose or what function uh, God performs at all in your worldview. Because all the values that you talk about of freedom, of creativity, of aesthetic values seem to me perfectly realizable without any theistic notion whatsoever. Yes. Uh, first of all, I hold that without a divine uh, plan for the world order, there'd be no value of any kind for anyone. Nothing. That uh, you, you can only have value in a coherent world system, or something like that. And I do not believe that free creatures can get together and order them, mutually order themselves to, to constitute a world. There are two possibilities. The creatures just adapt to each other. But I argue you cannot adapt to a chaos. To talk about adaptation is to presuppose that a basic problem of order has been solved. And therefore, you won't solve it that way. Darwinian evolution presupposes a settled order for inanimate nature. Then he explains how creatures can adapt, with assuming that basic order. He does not explain that basic order. I don't know any physicist that explains it. But doesn't that presuppose a stronger notion of power than you want to grant? No. God has the power to, to, to order the world. But uh, this is an order for free beings. That means that it's not a rigid absolute order. It's not a deterministic order. It's a rough approximate or statistical order at most. And it's, it, it comes the closest to an absolute order on the lowest levels of freedom. And that's where physics started, and that's why determinism looked plausible in astronomy, where you don't even know the individual atoms or molecules you're dealing with. You only know these big clumps or groups of molecules or atoms or particles. And uh, their individual freedoms are so tiny and slight that they cancel out statistically, so we think there's absolute order. That's one of the ways in which the illusion of determinism got its hold on the human mind. It, these are not historical mysteries. We know how it happened. People don't seem to realize that. There's nothing older than, in, in, in recorded time, there's no older idea than determinism, at least 25 centuries old. Question here from Granville Henry. But that's only one thing that God does. That's only the beginning. But without that divine ordering, I hold there'd be nothing whatever. Great. In, in which Paul Peach uh, tells about some experiments by Daniel Koshman from the University of California, Berkeley, on the memory of the bacterium E. coli. 
I think I've heard about that. What? I think I have heard about that. Uh, e. coli evidently swim towards uh, yeah. chicken soup and away from mocktail disinfectant. Uh, and, and the question is, is how do they do it? Uh, and the, the analysis was first to try to see if it was a spatial uh, uh, decision due to neurons, they don't have any neurons, or brains, they don't have any brains, or maybe they could perceive a difference in their front and their back end. And then, but Koshinen decided to try a temporal uh, gradient by increasing the amount of uh, solution <coughs> gradually. And when he did, the bacteria uh, swam uh, as if directed, indicating that uh, memory uh, had a temporal aspect to it. Uh, perhaps a prehension of the past, and this seemed to me to be a strikingly Hotsonian uh, uh, idea of uh, memory. And I, wanted to I think so. I hold uh, with Whitehead, and here we disagree with Leibniz, I think. Leibniz thought that the lower monads have no memory at all, no sense of the past, but now for Whitehead, all concrete intuition is of the past. There's no concrete intuition of the absolute present. So um, Whitehead differs from Leibniz there, and, I, and I'm inclined to go with, with Whitehead on that point. In fact, that's a point I owe to Whitehead. I, I might never have realized without Whitehead that perception and memory both relate us to the past, not the absolute present. Do you think that this is, uh, <coughs> we might consider this in some way a confirmation of process thought? Well, it uh, certainly fits it. Of course, uh, no amount of empirical confirmation is going to settle, uh, uh, and in my view, is going to settle an issue as abstract and ultimate as that. I think Whitehead, that in any possible world, that's the way it would be, that the concrete intuitions would have to be retrospective. No, it's not hurting my eyes. No. But, but uh, it, I, we've all heard of being blinded by too much light. It means I don't see the audience very well. <laughs> uh, June O'Connor. I would like to hear you address the theme of desire, the word desire. I've been thinking about it lately, mostly in the context of religious history. And I'm curious if you have a sense of uh, whether the history of philosophy has really uh, addressed the theme of desire. Uh, and then I'd also be interested in, in whether that word in reality has as much place in your own Desire. Uh, I, I don't know that very many philosophers have talked a lot about desire. There's something going on in France now, which I only vaguely remember. Uh, there's some group, some little doctrine about this. They, um, what do they call it? Some expression like, desire machine or something. Each of us is a desire machine or I don't know what, something a little like, crude like that. But I, I didn't really look into that enough to get anywhere with it. I don't know how many philosophers, well, Plato, I should think, is certainly concerned a lot with desire. The way people are swayed by pain and pleasure, you know, and he wanted to educate people so that they, were, they would not be swayed by pain and pleasure. But, um, and of course, uh, a lot of psychologists, my, my psychology teacher, Trolland, talked about uh, our behavior being determined by, by the experience of pleasure. Not the anticipation of future pleasure, uh, 
but just the, the association in the past of pleasure with something, that already begins to set up a habit <coughs> of, of sticking to that kind of thing. But I don't know that philosophers, I don't think offhand of the word desire as being a favorite philosophical term, do you? <laughs> If I can just elaborate on, yeah. on June's question, having talked to her. Oh, yes. Uh, that in so many of the religions, desire has been seen as a negative thing that yeah. they can overcome. Oh, yeah. And in, in, in Whitehead's thought, oh. particularly with the, the divine appetitions, it becomes to some oh. extent a positive. Oh, yeah, that's right. Appetition. Of course, Leibniz did use the word appetition. That was the, the really the, the word the, that was the key to all change, really, all motion. Plato said that the soul is self-moved, and to me that's one of the great um, sayings in the history of thought. If you talk about Plato and don't mention that, to, to me you're leaving out the central thing. The soul is self-moved and, at least indirectly, the, 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 the source of all motion, all change. So in the broad sense of a concern for the future, <coughs> Uh, a positive valuation on something to be achieved in the future, if that's desire, then certainly Whitehead has talked a lot about it. Yeah. George Luce. Professor Archon, I wanted to see if we could return to your views on contributionism for a moment. Yeah. Uh, you uh, stated earlier uh, in, the, in, the, in the hour that uh, uh, Contributionism was a view that would have been rejected and was rejected because the idea that uh, human life could make any contribution to the divine life seemed to do dishonor to God. Yeah. Now I wonder if um, perhaps a critic might respond to, to your theory now as suggesting that the idea that the significance of human life uh, is tied up in its contribution to the divine life uh, does dishonor to human individuality, and that they might want to reject uh, the uh, metaphysical underpinnings of that precisely because uh, they find any metaphysics that wraps up significance <coughs> in our contribution to God as robbing humanity of any significance. Uh, uh, if you could I think that's that is very possible somebody could say that. Um, I think that there is a definite answer. What uh, we contribute to God not in the way in which a slave contributes to someone by doing some work that, this, uh, that will have physical results that the other person will uh, profit by. All we contribute to God is our own realization of good or, or the similar realization in others that we influence. It's our own good that we contribute to God. That is. Our being happy contributes to, to the happiness of God, if you want to put it that way. Now, if we don't want to be happy, then, then, then that would be against... But, but if we want to be happy, well, how can we object to that? By, we, 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 we benefit God by benefiting ourselves, and only by that. Or by benefiting our friends, or those we are concerned about or ought to be. All God wants from us is our own good. But that becomes God's good. Uh, <clears throat> that's what love means, ideally, I, I would say. Uh, it, it's the other's good, but just because it's the other's good, it's my good if I love that other person. So I don't see how there can be any conflict with human good. When, when I was at Harvard, 
there were two graduate students arguing uh, about uh, theo theological matters. And one of them was talking all about the human humanistic values, you know, the things that we want for ourselves and other people. And the other fellow said, well, the love of God includes all that. To me, that was always the bottom line. He'd said it. I got two things out of graduate students that way. The other was, this graduate student said another, oh, you deify natural laws. And I, I, I can show you, doc, document the point of view that Nietzsche did exactly that. He dismissed God and deified natural law. <clears throat> I think you've developed a talking of analogy in your book entitled uh, Man's uh, Vision of God. Yeah. And um, uh, you are now mentioning something about the doctrine of uh, uh, contributionism, so I'm just uh, concerned with some kind of relationship between the two doctrines. According mm -hmm. to my understanding, um, some major theologians who have devoted themselves to the uh, discussion analogy, for instance, uh, Thomas Aquinas, Carl um, Barth, for instance, uh, Pannenberg, these three major thinkers of analogy have said nothing about contributionism, even though they talked about the possibility of reference to God while referring it to things in the world. But it seems to me you mentioned something about aesthetics in conjunction with the contributionism, then it seems to me that uh, you may be thinking of the uh, uh, real analogy, not the uh, analogy in terms only in terms of predication. So I would like you to try find your position. Uh, Did I'm so. not sure that I caught every word. Um, what is this analogy? Uh, I have two basic analogies for God. One comes from interpersonal relations parent, child, teacher, pupil, uh, ruler, citizen, long list, those are all interpersonal relations. That's one basic set of analogies, and I accept those. Now, the Judaic tradition uses those analogies, interpersonal relations. But there's another analogy in the Greek tradition, Plato's world-soul doctrine. That's the mind-body analogy. Did you mention that a minute yeah, ago? Oh, good. I didn't mention the world, but the organic uh, analogy all right. Now, what do our bodily cells contribute to us? I think the, their most basic contribution is they contribute uh, aesthetic value. Our sens sensory, the sensory f fullness of our experience comes from those cells. They contribute their little feelings to our sensory feelings and our emotional feelings. So they're doing for us what they're doing for us is analogous to what we do for God. But this is their own uh, positive feelings. Now, when we suffer, that means that they have negative feelings. So we participate in, in, their, in their suffering. We also participate in their sense of well-being. Uh, and our sense of well-being is, is basically, and at every moment when we're not badly sick or suffering, uh, we have a basic sense of well-being, which comes from the fact that our cells are, are enjoying life, so to speak. That's our relation to God. I think Plato was even more right than he knew with the world soul. That's a funny thing. That's where one point where Whited says the opposite. He says Plato's world soul has been a source of a lot of bad, of weak doctrines. I think 
uh, all he really shows there is that a, an analogy can be badly used. That's all I can see in that. But, but that, uh, I don't think he shows it all. That, 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 isn't, uh, that Plato is not on the right track there. And if you take Whitehead's definition of prehension and his statement that God physically prehends the world, I think you can see that if, if God were the world soul, that's what would happen. Charles, on this point of, uh, of analogy, uh, your, one of your other most illustrious students, uh, Schubert Ogden, yeah. has been questioning this recently, as you know. Ah, uh, yes. Arguing that, uh, while he's not convinced anymore that, uh, that one can make the case for panpsychism or psychicalism. Uh, yeah and that that therefore undercuts your whole doctrine of analogy. Have you had a chance to have any further... Yeah, I'm not... Uh, he had an argument where he thought he refuted me on this, and I swear I couldn't quite get it. Gene, P Gene Peters couldn't get it either. Uh, it, it's subtle, and I've read it several times. I'm still not sure that I get what the point is exactly. Okay, you... we'll send this tape to Schubert and have it. <laughs> <laughs> Clark. Uh, Professor Hartshorn, uh, you were saying a few minutes ago that any present moment when there are a multiplicity of free agents is a potentially chaotic uh, kind yes. of situation. And uh, uh, would you say that your view uh, was sort of an order out of chaos kind of, uh, when we were talking metaphysics, and well, the early Hebrews that you referred to before? Yes may have had a sort of order yes. of chaos. Have you investigated any conditions? Yeah, but you see, I don't take this uh, the way Peirce did. Peirce thought that reality started with practically complete chaos. But there's a little incipient tendency to take habits and to get a little more orderly. And a little, this is a self-reinforcing tendency, apparently. Now, I don't, I don't believe that's, that's the right tack. Now, Whitehead does a different thing. According to Whitehead, reality is always basically ordered, but no order, no definite order is there forever. God isn't stuck with one set of natural laws for all eternity. Why should he be? There are other laws which might also be good. So it's like the history of art. For a while you have one style of art, and then you've, you've had enough of that, so you have another style of art. So Whitehead has this succession of cosmic epochs, in each of which there are even different laws, that makes more sense to me than, than Peirce's scheme. But it is order out of chaos in the sense that it's getting free beings who tend to be chaotic. They're bound to be if they're free. There's no way in which you can get together and decide to just exactly agree on everything. Because the next moment the guy has done something that even he didn't foresee, how could you? Uh, so there's no way in which free beings can can just uh, voluntarily completely harmonize with each other. They have to take a chance on what the others are, are going to do. When they make their decisions, they don't quite know what the other will do and how that'll fit with what they decide. So there's an aspect of, of chaos in, in, in the idea of multiple freedom. It's taken philosophers 2,000 years to even begin to face that matter. But Epicurus had virtually stated the idea. One of the things that tickles me to death is that I get one of my principal encouragements from Greek philosophy from the materialists, not from Democritus. He was a determinist. Basically, I think he was a nobler character than Epicurus, but I think Epicurus had this point right. 
that even the atoms have freedom. Epicurus was convinced that he had freedom. That was a deep conviction of his. All, all the records agree on that. And, and, but since the atoms are fundamental, they, the freedom must be there too. I think he was absolutely right. But that wasn't a materialistic way of reasoning. Because you can also say, I have feelings, so therefore there must be something like feeling in the atoms if they're fundamental. But he didn't take that step. Before I call on Harold Loy, I want to say a word about him. Uh, Charles, one thing he was tickled, Charles was tickled by was our bumper stickers that say another family for Whitehead. <laughs> well, a few months ago and spoke to the uh, Hume Club, why uh, Harold there had revised that to say another union for Whitehead. <laughs> <laughs> My question relates to the concept of the unconscious as used by Jung, perhaps for William oh. James, is this a notion that can be established or not established by empirical, perhaps psychological field, or is it something that, that becomes the business of philosophers like yourself or Whitehead? Well, uh, that's fairly complicated and pretty difficult. Uh, Leibniz already thought that each monad mirrors the world, but it obviously isn't definitely conscious of all the detail of the world that it's mirroring. So you have, there has to be a lot in direct experience that's not available for conscious detection, whether you want to call it subconscious or not. Uh, you, you might, Whitehead, I mean, Leibniz uses the expression indistinct occasionally, mostly use the word confused. I think indistinct is better. Indistinctly, we intuit the past, but most of the detail can't be found in this. Very little of it. Peirce put a big, put a big emphasis on the fact that introspection is a very poor revealer of, of what's there in, in experience. The fact that we uh, feel it doesn't guarantee that we can think it at all and, and, and verbally report, report on it. And Whitehead has the same basic idea. He said, just confront experience and ask what's there. You're not going to get very much of what is there. You just can't do it. And that's what's wrong with Husserl, basically. He thinks somehow you can stare at experience and, and bracket the world. But that's a negative thing. You say, well, I'm not going to assume that the world is there. That's a purely negative move. That doesn't give you positive definiteness. So I, I think Husserl was very naive about this. Now, whether that's all that's meant by the subconscious, that's something else again. Uh, and let me see. Uh, well, you see, if, if, our, if our brains as nervous nerve cells have their own feelings, we're not certainly not conscious, distinctly conscious of that. But then there are the two halves of the brain, and I'm not up well up on what all that's involved in that. Uh, and you have the question of multiple personality and so on. Uh, there, are, there are lots of things to consider. But um, according to Whitehead, there's a lot of feeling in nature that he wouldn't call conscious at all. And that's a verbal difficulty, partly. Uh, is a baby conscious? Nobody doubts that it can feel pain. But is it conscious that it feels pain? Well, hardly, one would say. Uh, 
is a in what sense is a fish conscious? It probably feels pleasant pleasantness and unpleasantness about things, but in what sense does it think? And and what sense does it know? Does it know that it feels, or does it just feel? Do you call that unconscious feeling? Why did only use the word consciousness when you get a fairly high level of thinking? And I'm inclined to think that's a good way to use the word conscious. But it leads to verbal difficulties because, well, Sewell Wright, for example, was inclined, I may have got him to change a little, I don't know. He was inclined to say that all creatures are conscious. Well, that means he's using consciousness in a, in a very broad way. And I think the reason people tend to use consciousness in that broad way is that if you're a human being, when you're no longer conscious, well, then you don't feel either. At least you don't know that you never know that you felt. So when we become unconscious, there are no feelings there that are our feelings. But if you were a, a fish, maybe you could, you could have feelings without anything that's worth calling consciousness. But uh, since we're not a fish, we can't do it. Uh, are dreams any reliable reports on what we're feeling Well, we are not conscious? Well, <clears throat> They, uh, I find that my f dreams pretty systematically refer back to something that I thought before I went to sleep. That's one thing. I would say that in dreams you are aware of yourself as having a past. You're very vaguely aware of your past as yours, very vaguely. But you're, and this is Bergson. There's memory in dreams as there is in waking life. There's also perception or at least sensation in dreams as in waking life and for Bergson the sensations come from your body they don't just come out of the blue they come from the state of your body and he shows in detail how this makes sense but uh, there are all sorts of ways of looking at the question of, of consciousness uh, well, I'm not sure that the idea of in the indistinctness of uh, direct intuition doesn't cover a lot of it. Robert Dowd, uh, sometime now I've been interested in questions surrounding our commitments, human commitment, and uh, I'm wondering with your um, contributionism, is there anything that you would think about commitment itself and not about the particular things we might be committed to that would be particularly valuable to God? Is there a unique contribution in that area? A commitment. I haven't talked much about commitment. Um, I suppose to be religious is to be committed to the service of God, at least to be religious in the theistic sense. But um, I would think that commitment is somewhat more. Uh, a term that relates us to other people, that is, we make promises, we commit ourselves, <coughs> which justifies other people's expectations in a certain direction. And that I don't know that that comes in exactly in our relation to God. Um, if, if we decide something, we decide to try to serve God, now, we, we serve God by promoting human welfare, 
because what does God, could God need from us but, but uh, the human welfare or the welfare of other creatures? There was some deist, I'm not sure whether it was Thomas Paine, Tom Paine or, uh, or one other fellow back there, who said, we can't give God any material goods, we can't give God food, he doesn't need food the way we do and so on. All we can do for God is to uh, promote the, the general welfare. I think that that's that's the, the truth. So uh, to be committed to serve God is to be committed to promote creaturely welfare. Now the fact that you see we don't have to, uh, if we say we promise that to God, that's a slightly anthropomorphic metaphor in a way. God, if we if we've decided that, uh, and with the sense that we're in the presence of God, that commits us in the only sense in which we need to be committed to God, but uh, other people would like to know what we're committed to because they're not in the same relation to us that God is. They don't automatically know what we're committed to. But I'm not sure if that answers your question. Did you want to follow up, Bob? Well, I'm wondering if there weren't perhaps satisfactions, intrinsic rewards we get out of our commitments um, that uh, make them particularly valuable to us, and wouldn't they be that, therefore, particularly valuable? If they're valuable to us, they're valuable to God. You know, there's the old question, why should God need our praise? Well, he doesn't, unless we need them. Unless we need to praise God, then God doesn't need to have us praise him. But if we need to be in the posture of praising God, then, then God, in that sense, needs it, but otherwise not. He doesn't have to be told whether he's good or not, <coughs> the way people do. <coughs> I'd like to go back to the discussion of feeling and whether an atom can, knows that it feels. My question is this, and it entails a paradox, oh. that if the atom does not know that it feels, then have you not defined feeling in a way that is meaningless, because if you don't feel that which you feel, then we're using the term feeling in a way that we're not, that, that you say demonstrates our limitation, but someone who does not follow your argument might say you reduce the term itself to meaninglessness. I don't think it's meaningless <coughs> to say that uh, the atom feels and doesn't know that it feels but the atom feels that it feels, if it has any memory at all of its previous, if it's just previous feeling, then it feels that it feels, so to speak, that it feels its previous feeling. So there'd be something analogous to, uh, that is, if, if the atom is, has, a has a individual identity through change. Now the physicists say that there are some questions about whether you can identify an electron in, in, at one moment with an electron later as the same individual, whether it has any real meaning. Uh, it, it may not, the, so that what you really have are electronic events rather than an entity called that electron. But if there's any identity through change, then I would say there's, there is some feeling at time t of the feeling just before. And that's a little bit analogous to, you see, the feeling being my feeling, or I have it. But you see, what we call knowledge in people, that involves language. Nobody quite knows uh, how, what, uh, what you can say an infant knows. Uh, and that hardly has the same meaning 
as it does to say that, that uh, a child that's able to really use language about itself can say that it feels. Language contributes something pretty tremendous to experience. I think there's no doubt about that. How do you feel about that, Susan? <laughs> 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 the other thing to me is that you yet the structural problem. Perhaps I haven't articulated it, but somehow I think of Bishop Barclay when he speaks of sensible objects. He says, okay, there's not a material world as a material as a thought of it, but yet he has a sensible object and he has the minds which perceive them. Now, there is, he has, he has a duality and it seems to me that you have a duality, too. If the atom, in the next moment, remembers itself, then somehow there has to be a mechanism by means, or a vehicle, or a mode by means of which it is perceiving itself. So that the atom, in proportion to itself, has the same level of consciousness that a human being has in proportion to itself. I think you are underestimating what language contributes. Um, you see, suppose the, the atom has a certain feeling. God will now feel that feeling. The basic knowing, uh, here I'm more like Barclay. Uh, if, if God is aware of it, then, then, then it's reality. Well, God is aware of all these feelings. I use the, the Anglican prayer book saying, or phrase, about God, to whom all hearts are open. I take that to mean that God feels all the feelings. That's not what they meant, but I think it's what they ought to have meant. <laughs> so, uh, if God feels the feelings of an atom, then, well, then there are such feelings. I don't see that the atom has to feel. Uh, the atom is that, uh, at, the, at a given instant, the atom is that feeling, rather than has, it just is that feeling. But if there's any uh, enduring uh, individual identity, then there'd be at least the absolute minimum of memory. You said something about a mechanism. I don't know quite what that means. God, in this way, becomes the mechanism by means of which the feeling is felt. Which the feeling is felt? No, no. Uh, <clears throat> according to, to Whitehead, an actual entity is a subject. Its objects are what are the feelings that it feels, you know, feeling of feeling, is always a duality. There's no such thing as merely uh, feeling uh, one's own pain. My pain is also suffering in my cells. The cell's pain is, is suffering, involves something about its molecules, and, and th there is no mere... Feeling is never a mere adjective. And, uh, if you say, well, there has to be something that does the feeling, there I think you're getting tied up in language. Grammatically, it seems to turn out that way. I, I don't think language is a mirror of reality in that, at that point. Paul Darcy. Yeah, well, this, this topic we could go on with quite a while. Yeah. By the way, my, my own feeling about the subject is clarity is introduced when you speak of gradations of types of actual entities. In other words, if you recognize a tremendous yeah. plurality. Enormous hierarchy, then, yeah. Then the, the feelings that she's talking about can be understood more in terms of vectors rather than human conscious feeling of something. 
I don't know, that's not what I was going to address, but it was oh. a here. What I was going to address was the, uh, the question of uh, George Lucas about uh, self-value or the value of doing something for oneself versus its contribution to God and the value question there. And my own suspicion is that from a process point of view, that the uniquely dipolar character, even of valuations yes. uh, or value, assist in getting beyond that either-or kind of thing. And I'm reminded of, I think, the first page in God in the World where Dr. Cobb says it's not a matter of choosing God or world, or God versus human value, but rather God and world. And my own comprehension of your thoughts is exactly along this line. Yeah. You have to get beyond the mm -hmm. either or view and see the integrative character of value. Uh, would you comment on that? I certainly hold that the ultimate universal is God with creatures not just God, not just creatures, but this is God as such, God in any uh, possible state of reality and creature in any possible state of creaturely reality. This is extreme abstraction, but you can't just have God as such, no creatures. You can't uh, just have creatures as such and no God. That, that There's always that divine, non-divine polarity. That's one of the contrasts that is ultimate in my view. And that's certainly Whitehead's view when he says that God is not before all worlds, but with all worlds. You can't first have God and then add some world. You always, there always was a world, there always was God. Richard Rice, uh, I'd like to return to the question of immortality for a moment. You've indicated that according to process thought, a notion of subjective immortality is not required for a sense of life's ultimate significance. And uh, I'm wondering if, if you believe that process thought allows for such a concept. Well, Whitehead certainly left the question open himself. I may have some tendency to close it. Uh, for me, it's, it's not very open. Of course, uh, Peirce, uh, said what a lot of people have thought. I think that uh, we might survive death, and that would not in the least guarantee that we'd survive forever. There could be other things, beyond, dangers beyond death, for all we know. Uh, how would we settle that? Immortality is an enormous proposition going on forever. And um, I don't personally feel any violent need to go on at all let alone to go on forever. I find that uh, our, our task in life is a pretty big task. If we can do that, that's, that's quite something. Uh, and if we can't do that... And, and furthermore, you see, I don't have the feeling that so many have, yeah, but it's not fair because some people have had much better luck than others. I agree that's true. But according to Whitehead, as I interpret him, and according to Buddhism, as the Buddhists really mean it, uh, the, the I-you, what, what I deserve, what you deserve, that's a secondary matter. We're a new, new reality every moment. 
the identity of, between me as a fertilized egg cell and me now, or me as a tiny infant and me now. Santayana even, who doesn't have my kind of philosophy and is, is not a theist, Santayana makes this point, said the identity of from that egg cell to, to, to uh, death, to the grave, but that's called, you can call that always the same thing. That's just an, uh, an, a very abstract kind of identity. All the concreteness of life is, is, is different from that. We make too much fuss about what, whether I get what I deserve or you get what you deserve. Of course, in, in human relations, we have to consider questions of fairness. But uh, I don't think they have their metaphysical significance. They don't for me, anyway. And a Buddhist tried to argue with me in favor of reincarnation by saying, well, suppose you were born blind. Wouldn't you want some explanation of this, of, of this apparently very unfair treatment of you? Wouldn't you want to know that in a previous life you, you may have acted badly and that's what brought this on? I said, that wouldn't make me feel any better. Now I'd feel guilty as well. <laughs> I, I just don't see it that way. I don't feel that you have a claim on the universe of that kind. I think to be alive at all is, is a gift. You, you haven't done anything to deserve the first moment of life. Uh, I don't think we have a claim on the universe. Stephen Crane seemed to have felt that in his poem. A man said to the universe, sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. I don't think the, <laughs> I, do, I do not believe that the universe is obligated to me. I'm obligated to the universe. John, you were to speak to that oh. point. Okay, well, I, I think that the differences are, let's say, religious and existential differences, that uh, I, I know few people who are as uh, completely satisfied as Charles is in a totally theocentric way of, of uh, experiencing life. And it does seem to me to be kind of ultimate norm that finally what we, uh, what we care about is that we give glory to God rather than that we get something out of it. But nevertheless, I'm not there, and uh, most people are not there, and it seems <laughs> to me that the possibilities of uh, uh, a normal and uh, genuine desire to, for death not to be the end. Uh, it's just part of the way most of us are, and I, I take it very seriously. And it seems to me process thought leaves the fact completely open, and I think there's a fair amount of evidence. It, you know, how you read the evidence is another matter, and uh, from my point of view, the resurrection of Jesus is an extremely important part of that evidence. I don't separate it from everything else <coughs> in some total way. But uh, I think the distinctive feature of process thought is, uh, has to do at this point with the question of personal identity. And our, our sense of personal identity is more like the Buddhist than it is like much that has been present in our Christian tradition. And personal <coughs> identity is not absolute. So the idea of there being an absolutely identical person who uh, perseveres <coughs> for inf an infinite time in the future seems to me nightmarish rather than some kind of uh, blessed hope. So a doctrine of immortality in that sense I think I reject as strongly as Charles mm -hmm. does. <coughs> so some kind of personal uh, continuity, yes, but immortality in that sense of immortality 
No, I think that the uh, ideal of um, more and more uh, full realization of perfection of maturity, whatever term we're going to use, would be one in which uh, personal identity dims for us in importance and our unity with others enhances in importance. And uh, so I think my, my ultimate ideal would be one in which Finally, the only concern of those uh, occasions of experience would be what they can contribute to God and to <coughs> others, and through others to God. So finally, God becomes the uh, final recipient, and uh, their self-identity with this particular causal chain of events that constitutes my personal uh, identity would simply disappear. So that, that's a for me, a, for me a rather remote eschatological notion, and I think Charles is already there. I appreciate that, but I'm... Uh, <laughs> but there does seem to be a way to conceive immortality that is theocentric rather than egocentric. I think so, and I would prefer to think in that direction. Granville, is your question right on this point? No. George, is yours? No. Anybody's right on this point? Yes, well, go ahead. Well, wouldn't it seem that if the decisions that we make form us and God, then that we already have in some sense immortality because we've already participated in the formation of beauty, change, all of those aspects of God that already then exist after the experience. Yes, and that's very much Charles. No, that's Charles certainly, certainly, my, certainly my view, yeah. And I fully agree with that. <coughs> trying to deal with the other question of, okay, in addition to the fact that, mm -hmm. that we contribute to the divine life here and now, how, is, that, is that the totality, that or may there be even beyond what we understand as death, further opportunities for such contribution and for becoming more, more totally uh, accepting of that contribution as, uh, as the whole of what's important to us. John, if my father had been here, he would have liked your reference to the resurrection of Jesus. He took that seriously. He said he didn't give it any very specific meaning, but it, it must mean something. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Gantz. Professor Hartshorn, I would like for you to uh, comment on uh, political theory uh, or uh, specifically, I guess, some of the social ills that we face. And this day when we spend more money on military than anything else, or and this day when uh, a lot of people are saying that the arms race and what that means to life is the most crucial question that anyone can face, regardless of a black child or a philosopher. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if you would comment on that for a few minutes. Well, now, now you raise one of the really terrible questions. Huh? But... Um, I, I, I find it, as so many do, a pretty baffling problem. But um, I, I certainly don't see much, much reason in supposing that a, a nuclear war could be anything but a catastrophe for anything we believe in, about as much as for anything the Russians believe in. So I think that we need a lot of popular pressure to get an administration which will look at it rather differently than the one we have, myself. And uh, we have to hope that the Russians will 
are wiser than they sometimes seem. We had a refugee from Russia who was pretty high up and ought to know. He said that they, they just assumed there would be a nuclear war. That's a terribly dismal thing. Because Khrushchev seemed to be beyond that. And I, I'm inclined to think he was. If Brezhnev isn't, that's terribly bad luck. I think we ought to be trying to educate him instead of threatening him. So, what key, key concepts uh, that you would find within uh, process thought well, uh, would be crucial for the reading? Well, you see, uh, God could do without the human species, but uh, I don't see any reason to think that wouldn't be a loss to God. At the present state, I, I don't know that the human species ought to last forever. This planet isn't going to last forever. But it doesn't seem to me that it has exhausted its best possibilities. You'd think there ought to be lots more things we could do. Though it's awfully hard to see. Eddington once said, can anybody imagine this earth lasting another million years with the people on it? I think he must have meant the pollution problem, I guess. What would be left? There are some ghastly problems. <clears throat> the shocking thing seems to me to be that in a time when we face these overwhelming community issues, national issues, and global issues, a lot of, all a lot of people can think about is how to uh, get a kick out of life or how to get revenge on uh, somebody they're, they're against or how to promote their group regardless of its cost to any other group. It's fantastic. I think partly as a biologist, we're animals without firm, definite instincts like the other animals. We're, we're in the dangerous position of being born knowing almost nothing about how to live. And so we have to, as Kant said, we have to be a law to ourselves because there's no law of nature to tell us. And that's the position we've always been in, but technology magnifies the consequences and the dangers. That's one of the things none of the philosophers have told us how how, what technology would do to solve our problems. They forgot to tell us it would also produce new problems and bigger problems. I, I like a sobering, realistic note to yeah. end on. We probably should have had that question before the one on immortality. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Time is up, and the Hartshorns need to get a, uh, a rest before the afternoon. So thank you, Charles and John, very much.